Enjoy the convenience of seven days a week banking and extended hours with Cube from First Arkansas Bank and Trust. Member FDIC. Three wins away from 300, so good luck to Coach Dyfel and the Arkansas softball team this weekend over in Lexington. Let's bring in Mr. Murphy, who I do trust explicitly and without fail. Tom, thank you for joining us. How are you on this Friday? Uh, I'm good, man. I'm giggling because of what you just said. But, hey, I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I appreciate Coach Dyfel. She's got a very optimistic perspective, and I, I'm glad that she trusts her fellow competitors. But I just don't. I just don't trust her. I don't trust uh, any, of these, any of these ladies out here or any of the coaches. But, anyway, um, let's talk a little uh, football first, then we'll get to some baseball talk. And Arkansas is still, again, I love this, that they're winning a lot of games and they're still working through some things, which is cool to me. Not going to get tired again this weekend, but we'll get to that in a second. Let's talk about football last weekend. Um, you know, again, I think the guys who stood out were pretty obvious. And let's start with the quarterback situation, though. And, you know, I, I guess there's going to be a battle for a little bit here because I really liked what I saw from uh, really all three of the guys that are vying for playing opportunities behind K.J. Jefferson. You know, you saw the, the freshman obviously fumble a couple. That was unfortunate. And, um, you know, we saw the arm strength of the uh, Arkansas native returning home. And then, obviously, the returning quarterback from last year, I thought he was he was pretty darn good. Maybe throw the data to Tanya. So uh, what did you, you think about the backups? And then I want to get your thoughts on K.J. obviously as well. Yeah, um, you know, they're adjusting to taking a few more snaps under center, new formations and stuff. And KJ Jefferson was explaining uh, the difference between Enos and and Bryles is you know the, the decisions you make. Some like with Bryles, there were some that were pre pre and post snap, but there was more um, that you did post snap reading. And then now under Enos, you, you make a lot of your reads before the snap. And so hopefully that helps direct what he, he does. Okay, that out of the way. I thought KJ, um, there were times early in the spring where I was concerned, like the new schemes, that he was all going to constantly be under pressure. They weren't going to protect well enough. And you know, like reminiscent of that LSU game from two years ago that they won, where he just every play he made, it, it was somebody in the backfield, but he made a play. But I think the protection settled in, and I think KJ's on course to have a fantastic senior season. Chriswell, uh, he started out in spring as the number three, and by the end of it, he was taking more snaps at two, maybe than Kate Fortin. But it's, it's certainly a good battle there. Two guys who both started their careers at North Carolina. Chriswell's got a really nice arm. Um, you know, his decision making I think improved throughout the course of spring, uh, and I think the main objective was. If KJ is unable to play in a game, we have to be in better position to win a game. And I felt like they, they didn't think they were in the Mississippi State game last year and then the LSU game. And I think they feel a whole lot better at what position they would be in if KJ is not in a game coming up in 23. What do you think about Fortin's performance? I mean, that was he, to me, he made some strides from last year. And like I talked about the throw to uh... – to Satania, and then he also had a really nice check. Then I thought squeezed the ball in between a few defenders. What would you think about his performance? And again, I'm not trying I, to talk him into him over, uh, you know, over, over our Arkansas native, but uh, I thought he played well. <laughs> he did play very well, and he he had a good game, and he kind of showed that veteran presence. I mean, when you total it all up, he and Chriswell are, you know, have about the same amount of experience, um, just scattered here and there. Um, I know that Fortin had a period of as being the starter. Um, at South Florida, it wasn't all great there. And then Chris will had, you know, brief moments. I know he started at least one game at North Carolina. 
I agree with you. He made a great throw. KJ had a great throw, throw to Satania, too. The 65-yarder mm-hmm. was just a beautiful drop um, uh, into, into, you know, perfect position. And, you know, obviously, or Antonio Greer, the linebacker, was only a step behind. So, Satania versus a linebacker, you'd think he'd blow him away. But uh, to, to Greer's credit, he was just behind. And so, I think maybe in game situations, if they wind up with a middle linebacker on a fast slot, they might be in position to make a play. But, yes, Kate, uh, Kay Fortin had a good game, and that kind of bolsters my argument or in what the Razorback coaches wanted, that between he and Criswell, they'll find a way to you know, move the ball if they have to without KJ. Tom, who would be your spring offensive MVPs and defensive MVPs? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, we look at skill players when we're looking at that kind of thing because we can't, see every rep, every every protection bust, every protection success and all that. So Satania really ranks up there. I thought he might have caught uh, among the most passes of anybody in all of spring, and you could just tell they were setting some stuff up for him. I think Dan Enos came in early and recognized it's, it's a fast kid, a, you know, a kid that we can get over the top, and then another also get the ball to him, and he can juke make somebody miss, and if you block things up well, he can go all the way. So I think Satania would stand out. I think KJ had a fine spring. Um, the tailbacks, you know, we didn't see a whole lot of tackling, but we know that we know that Rocket and Green and Dubinion are, are going to be one of the most formidable tailback trios in the country. And then I think, I think the offensive tackles made strides. Uh, they were very concerned after their first scrimmage the one that we didn't see at all where apparently the DNs just dominated. And the next thing we know, Patrick Kudis goes from the interior to tackle, and he stays there. So I feel like they believe that Devin Manuel and Patrick Kudis can settle in, and they have the you know agility, they have the, the footwork that can do the, all the things a modern college offensive tackle needs to do. Um, and then on the other side of the ball, um, you know, Poopal, I think, just really established himself as, his, as, as the leader on that defense, was really big. And then the cornerbacks, I mean, the things that you can do if you get great coverage, man coverage, you trust them. Um, and it goes pretty deep there with both, you know, with McLaughlin, Snack Johnson, Quincy McAdoo, and even beyond. I mean, Ladarius Bishop has a ways to go to, to get to his old form, but. I think they're pretty deep there. So, and and then the DN, Landon Jackson might have been your your defensive MVP. I would I would say between he and Pooh Paul, the two of the more consistent guys. Jackson really brought pressure um, in the scrimmage we did not see, and then he had two sacks in the red white showcase. Um, he had a really good spring, and then you know Cam Ball had a high ankle, but he he was having the kind of um, spring that Torian Carter had the year before. All right, uh, Tom Murphy with us from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, Whole Hog Sports on the Brandon Moving and Storage Highland. Let's shift over to baseball last night. and I was just rereading a story that uh, Andrew Hutchinson wrote. That was really good. Broke down some numbers. Talked a little bit about the shortstop position. Arkansas 3 of 18 with runners in scoring position last night. And for those of you who don't know anything about baseball, that's not very good. And then uh, the breakdown of Cole versus Bolton, and he went through the batting averages. And obviously they have turned to uh, Bolton for defense. And Cole has only had, I think, one error on the year, and I think that was not even at shortstop. But 
it has been an issue um, offensively, and we've just sort of lived with it, I guess. And then there's also the d- discussion, I guess, about the lack of production from the catcher position. But um, what, what do you think uh, will happen here? Do you think he maybe turns to to Cole here to try to find some offense and just hope that his defense is good enough? That's what he did late in the game yesterday. Well, it's an interesting conundrum, and it's something that you know that Dave Van Horn and his staff are thinking about on a daily basis. Where, where do we get the most value? And you can tell from recent years that if he thinks uh, the, the offensive-defensive trade-off between two players is pretty even, then he's going to go with a guy who's a stronger defender. And in this case, he's been going with John Bolton much of the year. There's been a, a few times where Cole has gotten starts at shortstop. I know early on in conference, Cole got a couple of starts, and he just not, did not capitalize offensively. He might have only one error, but I know he's been saved by a couple of scoops on low throws. Bolton has two. But I think, I think they're going to end up in a position where they might, with the guys who are injured, they might have to try and pull more often because of the offensive upside. Um, and because if Bolton is going to hit like he did, you know, has recently, which is not good, and then have a defensive game like he did last night, mm-hmm. then where's your value there? So uh, I think if Cole had gotten a hit in the eighth inning, but he was the one who was up with bases loaded and one out after Hudson Polk struck out. If Cole had gotten a hit there uh, or a sack fly, anything, or driven in a run, I think it's like, okay, here's another example. He mm-hmm. needs to be in the lineup. But he didn't. He struck out looking. So it's been a tough call for them at that position. Y'all, I just thought it was so ironic. When I wrote the advance for this series, Georgia had just won its first one-run game of the year at Clemson on Tuesday. And But you could get the sense from Scott Strickland and the program that they were starting to play better. So I had a feel this was a little bit of a dangerous weekend, and I ended up writing about one-run games. And, and that was Georgia's first win. I think they were like 1-5. and five. Meanwhile, Arkansas was like 3-0 and oh mm. in one-run games. Mm. I said, don't you know this first yeah. game is going to be a one-run game? <laughs> yeah. And it was. Good job. It was just the kind of it was just the kind of game Arkansas has been winning mostly all year. That kind of scenario where if you just hit uh, a loop, a bloop single with the bases loaded, you tie the game or you take the lead, and they just did not get that hit. Yeah, they should have given up a leadoff home run in the game last night. That seemed to work well against Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it they held um, Georgia's bigger bats for the most part down. Um, and it's the catcher in the seven hole who had the, the big hit. And and I maintain that big inning, you know, there was a clutch single after a long at bat um, by Parks Harbor. You know, big at bat, you know, made it two to one. Uh, but then, you know, uh, something else happened. Another guy got on. And then as he walked the shortstop, Murillo, he was having trouble with location. On that pitch, ball four was a catchable ball. I mean, it was it hit Hudson Polk's glove. And a run scores, and it made it 2-2 two to two on that play. And the very next pitch, you could kind of tell he was saying, all right, let me, let me get a strike over, and Gonzalez was ready for it. Mm-hmm. And that was a difference in the game. First pitch after that mistake turns into a three-run you know, home run. Mm-hmm. I'm becoming a fan of uh, McLaughlin. What happens uh, when uh, Wagner comes back? What are they going to do with him? You know, that's a great point because they're a little bit offense-starred with Borfin in, in a little bit of a slump right now. I mean, it's a mini slump, but since his average was at 420 or whatever, 
he, he's in a slump. Yeah. Because it's down in the 380s, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a great question because it looks like McLaughlin's natural position is first. Um, and it looks like Diggs is growing into the outfield role at right in right field. That the catch he made at the top of the wall was a thing of beauty last night. So it is an extra bat. Um, if he could play third base, or if he could play, you know, hmm. I don't know. I don't think he can take Cali out right now tough. the way he's playing. Cali's finally figured it out. It looks like yeah, he has finally figured it out. So the, the holes are at short and can McLaughlin catch? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there was almost a scenario last night where if, um, I want to say, if Slavens had just reached base or tied the game and the eighth spot had come up, that was Hudson Polk. And I think if both of their catchers had been healthy, he would have been pinch hit four in his previous at-bat, mm-hmm. and which was a strikeout, you know. If, if that position had come up, what would they have done? I mean, I think you'd want to pinch hit but who else can wear the catcher's gear? And I meant to ask Dave that last night, and I forgot. Okay. Well, Obviously, we'll... nobody can, or they would have pinch hit for him in the eighth. That's a good point. Um, Tom, we got to run. I appreciate the time, and we'll catch you next week. Catch you. Sounds good, y'all. Have a good weekend. Hmm. Next week. See what I did there, Tom? Yeah. Catch you next week.